Well, thank you for being here. Um, we are going to get started, and uh, our, our seminar here is Fearing God in Light of His Love. And so we're discussing two things that, at least on the, uh, on the face of it, might seem difficult to reconcile. That we are to fear God, we are to reverence Him, we're to have a holy awe of Him because of His greatness, because of who He is, and the fact that He is who He is should cause us at least to have some reverential deference to Him. But on the other hand, He reveals Himself in His glory as a God of love. And so the question is, how do we understand those things as they work together? How do those things harmonize? And that, that's exactly what we're going to look at in the revelation of God's name in Exodus 34. We'll be looking at approaching God, right? Um, you have outlines in your, uh, in your folder if you want to look at that. Approaching God and the fact that his greatness is not safe is kind of revealed, I think, in chapter 34, verses 1 through 5 of Exodus. Then the second part is about knowing God. His self-revelation is love. And that's in verses 6 and 7, where he declares his name to Moses. Uh, so let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll dive right in. And, uh, and we got to explain a bunch of stuff as we go along, but hopefully it'll be encouraging to us. Lord, thank you for these men and for the time that they're willing to sacrifice and spend here just looking at your scriptures. Thank you for their, their desire to know you better, to fear you righteously and purely and in a way that impacts their life and their worship. And Lord, as we, as we discover the glory of your love, as well as the glory of your greatness, may those work simultaneously in us so that we are all the more inspired to love and reverence the God of mercy. We are thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that it is only by his blood that we can attain to any sense of being in your presence. And so we praise you um, for the word and how you reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Start with a quote, and that's there for you by A.W. Tozer. He says, the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And this is the reason why he says it. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. You get what A.W. Tozer is saying? He's saying, listen, what's most important about us is what we think about or what we think God is like. Because whatever we think God is like, there's almost this secret law in our soul that makes us gravitate towards that mental image. So if we think that God is very angry with sin and punishes all sin and is delights in the punishment of sin, we will naturally gravitate towards this this self-righteous, kind of always angry with people's sin, right? This legalistic, you got to do this, you're doing this wrong, and we'll gravitate that way. And if we gravitate towards God and we say, oh, he's a loving God, he's a forgiving God, and that's all I care about, I don't care about any of his other attributes, and he just loves me, loves you, he loves all people, and we want to gravitate towards that kind of God, that's what we will naturally become. We become our mental image of who God is. He loves us, that's... That's the unbeliever, right, at your workplace or in your neighborhood, right? Or, or you know, maybe in your family that just thinks, oh, no, God's love. He, he, he's never going to do anything bad to me. I'm a pretty good person. He just loves me, right? Our mental image of God shapes our soul and moves us to live, to worship, to believe, and shapes our affections towards what we think God is like. Well, we don't have to wonder about what God is like. He reveals himself to us in Scripture. And I, I'm drawn to this particular portion of Scripture because um, more than any other place in Scripture, this is God just saying, listen, this is what I'm like. This is God self-revealing. It comes with some background, so we need to talk about his greatness first in verses 1 through 5. That's what we mean by approaching God. Because right? if you're going to come near to God, you have to know what He is or how great He is. And the thing I want to underline in our minds is to approach God and His greatness is not safe. God's greatness is not safe. And that's why we call it the fear of the Lord. There's always been a push, you know, for um, us to change that language of fear of the Lord to something like 
we should just, you know, all of our English translation, we should get, drop the word fear. We should, we should add the word like, you know, be inspired by the Lord or reverence Him. Those aren't bad terms and they fit under that. But the term that the Old Testament and the New Testament keeps using for God in terms of this idea of reverencing Him is the word fear. I'm not sure why. It can mean terror and it doesn't, it's not meant to be or inspire merely terror, but it is to say that there is something categorically different about His greatness and us. You guys understand what I'm saying when I say categorical, right? Categorical is like, you know, the difference between me and a picture of me. You know, I'm married to a wife that I love. And imagine that if, uh, if I drew a picture of my wife, Kathy, and I said, now this is Kathy. I wanted to show her to you. And excuse me, we need a little moment, right? And I'm kissing the picture and everything, right? And I'm talking to the picture sweetly. And I'm saying, we're going to have our devotionals today. And we're going to go have a cup of coffee. You, you'd start looking at me like, man, something's wrong with that brother, right? Because there's something categorically different between a two-dimensional drawn image of something and the real deal. We are as different from God as a two-dimensional picture, a creation of His hand, is different from the very Creator. That's the point. And to know that kind of great God, that is not safe. We pick up the, 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 the context here um, under point one. You guys can look at your outlines if that's helpful to you. But under point 1a, verse 1, we have to explain the context of broken tablets. It says here that the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So in that one verse, without giving you a previous context, you'd be, you'd be thinking, okay, Moses has been a bad boy. He's broken the tablets that God has given to him. What is happening right now, right? And this is what's happening, right? Two months earlier than this particular point in time, about two months earlier in Exodus 19, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. God has delivered them by a supernatural means, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai. That's where they are still, right? And when they approach God, God says, don't come up on the mountain, you're going to die, right? Don't let your animals come up on the mountain, they will die. You, you, you need to be careful, right, how you approach me. And then there's thunder, there's darkness, there's an earthquake, right? They are understandably freaking out. And when God speaks, it sounds like thunder. Other places in Scripture, sometimes it says, it sounds like the roaring of many waters. See, when I think about roaring waters, right, you know, when you're reading Scripture, it's like, oh, God's voice is like roaring waters. I think of turning on my faucet. Oh, it's a pretty gentle voice, right? It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the Niagara Falls. It's about getting close to massive amounts of water. If you go out to the ocean and the waves are big and pounding that day, you hear the kaboom of each wave. In fact, you feel the kaboom of each wave. That's what they were feeling. And they understood from a distance the terror of a God that is so much infinitely greater than them. But that's not the only context. Because that doesn't explain why Moses be breaking tablets and, and having new ones made, right? When Moses goes up to the mountain by himself for 40 days, and he takes too long as far as the people are concerned. If you flip back to Exodus 32, I want to walk this through with you. It is the incident of the golden calf. Exodus 32, starting verse 1, says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now I want you to understand something. What is happening here is syncretism. I know our English says, let us you know, make for us gods, right? But what they're saying is Elohim. In the Hebrew, it is, it is El, the word for God, the gener generic word for God, with the plural suffix, meaning you could translate it gods. But in other times, Elohim throughout the Old Testament scriptures references our singular God, and capital G, God, is who Elohim is. And the reason why is by adding the, the plural suffix, the Hebrew word can become deeper in terms of its honorific. We're not just talking about some you know, average L, God. We're talking about the God, the God of gods, Elohim. Right? I think, 
I think that's what they're saying. Make for us Elohim. They know God. They know how God is honored. And let Him go before us. That's At least that's the way that Aaron seems to take it. Because in verse 2 of Exodus 32, Aaron says to them, Okay, take off your gold rings, right? That are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, so the people look at this golden calf and they said, these are our, these are your gods. Or they said, this is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I don't think they thought a whole bunch of gods rescued them from the land of Egypt. I think they know that one did. And so when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before this golden image. And Aaron proclaimed, and this is what Aaron says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And he uses the personal name of God, Yahweh. Which tells you that in Aaron's mind, and the people's mind, they thought in some kind of twisted way, they were honoring God. The God of the Old Testament. right? Not just general gods. And here's where it gets worse. The next verse says, They rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and then the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That last phrase, rose up to play, when used in a pagan worship context, it's used for orgiastic right, partying. They're getting drunk. They're dancing. They're sleeping with each other. They're chasing each other. They're doing all kinds of nonsense. And this kind of sinfulness broke out. And so when Moses shows up on the scene a few verses later after God tells him what's happening in the camp, Exodus 32 verse 19, it says, As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And I'm going to ask you, do you think God was mad that Moses broke those tablets? I mean, God cut these tablets out of the stone. He used his finger to write his law on it. He wasn't mad. In fact, the scriptures don't reveal anything about God being upset at Moses at all for this. And it was appropriate that he did this in the vision of all of these partying Israelites worshiping this golden image because he is breaking the very tablets, right? That, that is to be the word of God that they have promised to obey in chapter 19. They have said, all that you say, we will do. They, that's what they covenant promised. They broke their covenant with God already. It had been a few days and Moses had just come on the scene and they had already fallen into this kind of depraved idolatry. And Moses is saying, these tablets that you are waiting for, the law of God that he has covenanted to you and that you have covenanted to keep, these are broken. And so he slams them down to say that you've broken covenant promise and so the tablets are gone. It's a clear sign that they had fallen into sin and they had disregarded the goodness and the greatness of who God is. They did not take God as being holy. Now can I remind you brothers, I have not had a theophany. I haven't seen God hasn't appeared to me, not in a dream, not in a vocal word, um, on a burning car. I've not seen God in any visible form, right? These guys had. If you just rewind a few months, right? These guys had seen God do these amazing plays on the nation of Israel, the greatest, most powerful nation in the world. They were rescued, and the citizens of, of Egypt were like, hey, um, goodbye, good riddance, and here's a bunch of gold, right? To enrich them. And they walked across, right, the Red Sea, and it was parted, and it says they walked across on dry land. And when the Egyptians came for them, they were swallowed up. They had seen a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God's presence walking and moving among them. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. So how ridiculous is this, right? Then after seeing all that, they decide, you know, we haven't seen Moses in a while. Why don't we make an image? That's what other people do. We'll call it Yahweh and then we'll party. They have broken God's covenant promise. And that's the context of broken tablets. Broken tablets equals broken covenant. So what do you do? What do you do? Where do you go from here? Well, one, you need a mediator. You need someone to go between these sinners and God. 
Because God is great. God is holy. You don't just walk up to God and go, God, I, I was just messing around, right? It's having an affair on you. But, you know, I'm back. You're so lucky I'm back. That's not the way you treat a holy, categorically different, categorically greater God than you. So this is what God says to Moses. Verse 2, be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Now look at what he says in verse 3. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. No flocks, no herds, graze opposite that mountain. Only Moses, right? No one else may approach. The need for a mediator is because the people are unworthy and God is too great. You you don't just walk up to a holy God and say, God, I've been messing around up to just yesterday. But you know what? I'm ready for you now. You're so lucky that I am ready to receive you now. You know, one of the saddest things that I've heard in uh, church discipline issues at our church, and this goes years back, the last time someone said this, um, was they, they kind of said, well, you know, I, I know this is sin. You've shown me in scripture this is sin, but I don't care because I need this to be happy. And it's like, listen, I said, I, I hear what you're saying, sister, but you, you can't do this. You can't do this before God. And her thing was, listen, I still believe in God. I, I just, I just got to do this to be happy. And then don't worry, I'll come back to him later. And I had to warn her, how do you know you'd come back? You think it's up to you? This is God we're talking about. We don't play games with a great God. You can play games with Buddha, because Buddha's not real. right? You can play games with Brahma or Baal. You can play games with made-up gods like Zeus. You can hide stuff from them. This is the one true God. And you don't just walk up on him. And because of that, only Moses and only Moses, the mediator, can approach God on their behalf. No one else can come. Not even the animals. They will all die. So Moses is the one that pleads to the Lord on behalf of the nation. You know, earlier in chapter 32, and I'm just going to summarize it because I'll probably take too long. But God says after the the golden calf incident, he says, you know what? Let me alone because I'm thinking of destroying all of these guys and making a nation out of you. And then remember Moses, the mediator, he implores God. You can't do that, God. These are your people. You promised them. You are our God, Right? You are Lord, gracious, and kind. You, you, need to, you need to govern over these people, right? And as Moses does that, I think God's intention was not to say that this is what I'm going to do, period. And then, oh, now that you've said that, Moses, I've changed my mind. Not at all. God is saying that in a way to open the door for him to step into his mediatorial role, for him to act as the go-between between God and a sinful people. He is training him in the way that he is to approach God on behalf of sinners, Moses is not perfect. In fact, because of his own sin, he will not even be allowed to enter into the promised land. But later on, there will be a mediator between us and God that is perfect. And through the veil of his flesh, we get to go into the very presence of a holy and great and mighty God and not feel ashamed because our sins have been fully cleansed. This is what Moses is 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 illustrating to us as the mediator. He meets with God in the tent of meeting in Exodus 33. And what that means is that God comes down in the cloud and all the nation of Israel, they come out and they watch and Moses goes into the tent and God goes into the tent and it says he meets with God as a friend would meet with a friend face to face. This is the privilege of the mediator. He goes between God and his people. But why do we need a mediator? Because his people cannot live in the near presence of the greatness of the majestic holiness that is our living and consuming fire of a God. Moses has to be the mediator. So much so that God tells him, don't let the animals up on the mountain. They're going to die too. Right? Animals don't even have souls. Right? They're not sinning. They're just acting instinctively. But they are mundane. They are, they are normal. They are earthly. They are categorically different from the glory that is our God. That, that, that's the point, right? And so um, Moses acts as their mediator. And as he does that, he asks for certain things, right? And one of the things that he asks in uh, uh, Exodus thirty three eighteen 18 
is show me your glory. And I like this, and I think it's strange, because of all the people that I know in the scriptures, I'm not sure that any human being besides Jesus, our Savior, right, had known or experienced God's glory more often than Moses. Think about it. He's called from a burning bush, but it's not really on fire, right? Not being consumed. God talks to him there. And then, and then here, God speaks to him, right? And, um, and tells him what to do. We already talked about the tent of meeting. He meets with God face to face, right? There's so many things that is exclusively for Moses, and he has seen so much of God. And this is the guy that's saying, Lord, show me your glory. He's hooked. He's got to know more of God. But what does God tell him in Exodus 33? Turn there, because this is really good in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God says to him, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then the Lord takes him and places him right by a rock. And he says, while my glory passes in verse 22, Why my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I'll be honest, I don't don't understand everything that's going on here, right? But I know this, Moses could not handle, right, the full glory of God. And God says, as a protection, I'm going to shield you from my full glory and you will see my afterglow. Right? And even that will be enough, according to the New Testament, that Moses' face is glowing. It is glowing, brothers. I mean, not like how we use it metaphorically, like, hey, you know, so-and-so just got engaged. His face is glowing, like he's happy. I mean, like it is, he put a veil over his face because his face is on fire. It's like glowing. This is nuts. This is the kind of thing that's happening to this particular mediator, and this is the glory of God. And God is trying to reveal to Moses that it is a good thing that he desires to see his glory, but it's an impossible thing because there's something, if he saw the full visage of God, not only would his jaw drop in awe, but his heart would stop, his brain would stop functioning, and he would fall dead. That was understood by every Old Testament saint who thought that they had a theophany. They thought that they saw God. They like make altars and say, Oh my goodness, I just saw God and I lived. Their assumption of the great God was that you should die. Only the mediator goes between us and the greatness of this holy God. But then how how, how might we meet with this God? He must condescend to us. And that's point C. The condescending Lord, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand these two tablets of stone. The Lord descended. The Lord had to descend because that's how the Lord must meet with us because we cannot ascend. We can never get to his height or his category. So he has to descend. He descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What's not What's, what's normal to me is the statement that God needed to descend. What is not normal to me is that in, in part of God coming to Moses, he proclaims the name of the Lord. I think what he is doing is he's doing what he has already done once before, the chapter earlier. He is displaying his glory to Moses once more. And I just think it's so interesting to me, right? That part of God displaying his glory to us is telling us what he's like. He tells us his name, his attributes, his actions, what he is like. And that's supposed to be for us, the knowledge of his glory. In other words, when Moses says, show me your glory, God does. He shows him the afterglow. But even as he runs by, he says and he proclaims, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And you're like, why does the Lord do that? Like, Lord, no, no, no. I think you got me wrong. I just wanted to see your glory. I didn't want to hear you talk about yourself, right? Not not that that's bad, Lord. I'm just saying, I was just here for for the video, not for an audio. But why does the Lord reveal himself that way? Because he is trying to condescend to us, to reveal himself to us in ways that are otherwise mysterious or unknowable. God is serious about his holiness. 
and he's serious about his love. And he needs us to understand that that's how he connects with us. That's how he condescends to us. The seriousness of his holiness, I think, is displayed in the precision of everything that is taking place, right? Moses doesn't just doesn't cut like two or three tablets of stone in case he drops one, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just kind of go about this haphazardly according to his desires. He cuts the two tablets of stone just like the first. He gets up early in the morning and it speaks of preparation and getting ready. He goes up to Mount Sinai just as the Lord commanded him. You notice those phrases? Just like the first, just as the Lord commanded him. And he takes these two tablets of stone and he does all of this in exactly the, the, the proper procedure and preparation that God has demanded of him. Why? Because God takes, God takes approaching him and his holiness very seriously. He is unbending in regards to sin and uncleanness coming before him. Right? This, this, remember we talked about like, like these unbelievers that kind of think, well, God is so loving, you know. I've been a pretty good person. I was a good dad and you know what I mean? I, 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 didn't, I didn't do anything mean to anybody. I never murdered anybody, you know. I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy. And so I think God will kind of get it. Those individuals, they don't realize that God is unbending in regard to every single sin. And so if God is going to condescend, if he's coming down, if he descends to meet with us, the sinner, we're doomed. So if God is to come to meet with us, to condescend, there must be something that he does to offset the terror of his greatness. The fear of God is, is normal and automatic. And there's not a creature in existence who can stand before his glory. Moses, who saw a vision of God here, a vision of God there, in so many different ways, met with God face to face, he could not see the full visage of God's glory. Every sinner will account for every single sin. Because that's the nature of the greatness of God's holiness. Matthew 12, 36, remember Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for some of their careless words. Is that what it says? No, it says for every careless word they speak. Have you guys spoken any careless words in your life? I cannot imagine the number of careless, right, wrongful, sinful things that I've said through the course of my human existence. Every single one must be paid for in full. All right? Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Failure is not acceptable when it comes to God's greatness and His holiness. So how does He condescend to us and how can He relate to us when He is so unsafe? And He provides us the means. And that's what we're going to look at in a moment. But let me give you this quote because I was supposed to give it to you earlier but I forgot and I like this quote. From C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. They find out that Aslan is a lion, not just a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. So Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver, if you haven't read Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, that's not weird. All the animals talk, right? Mr. Beaver says... Is he safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. See, this is, this is the answer. How can God, the God, the unapproachable God, the great and holy God, how can he come and meet with us? How can greatness, right? That greatness condescend to us in a way that allows us to interact with him. And the answer is his goodness. The answer to his greatness is his goodness. The reality of, of why we should fear him is real. I mean, he is that great of a holy God, but the answer to how can we then approach him, how can we have a relationship with him, and it's, it's because of the self-revelation of his love for us. It's his love. It opens that door. That's point number two. 
Knowing God, his self-revelation, his love. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Does this sound familiar? It should. We just had read that, that when, when Moses wanted to see his glory, that God passed before him and he proclaimed something. And this is an extension of that. He says even more. He says, he passes by and he exclaims, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God explaining himself through his name. It's an exposition of God as he exposits his own name. He's giving us his attributes, what he's like, by telling us who he is. It's remarkable. This is how God is going to explain why we can approach him. Why the nation of Israel, who just literally a day ago, have been feasting and partying and acting crazy and making idols and calling this, this golden calf Elohim and Yahweh. How can idiots like that, idiots like you and I, how can we be welcomed into the throne room of God? It's because He condescends to love us. Right? He begins with this title first, talking about His greatness again. He says, right? He said, Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Now, if you see that in your English text, you see that Lord, in all of these lords here in this passage, is small caps, right? That means that all four letters are capitalized. And I, I trust many of you guys, if not all of you guys, know what that means. It is our way of, of uh, in our English, describing the holy four letters, Y-H-W-H, right? Holy tetragrammaton. You don't need to remember that. It just means the holy four letters, and it is God's personal name. We pronounce it, or we could pronounce it, Yahweh, and if, you, and if you kind of, you know, anglicize it or Yiddishize it, then it could be Yahovah, Jehovah, right? Sometimes we use Jehovah. But in, in most of our English translations, a, a few will say Yahweh or Jehovah in those instances, but most of our translations follow the tradition of the Masoretes or the old Hebrews, right? As the Israelites would read the Hebrew Old Testament, because they feared taking the Lord's name in vain, whenever they saw his personal name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, right? Whenever they decide, they don't say, you know, and Yahweh passed before him. They would see it and they would say instead, Adonai passed before him. They'd use the word Lord. We're just preserving that old tradition. And so that's a come if it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that's just Adonai. That's just Lord. But if it's small caps, if all four letters are capitalized, that's Yahweh. In fact, sometimes you'll see G-O-D in all caps. That's because it's Yahweh. Because occasionally, the word, you know, the word of God in Hebrew says, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. So how would the Hebrews read that? Well, they would say, Adonai Adonai, right? Which is kind of weird. For us, we say the Lord God, and we put God in caps to let you know that's his personal name, Yahweh. This is the Lord repeating twice for emphasis his name. So whatever else he's trying to say, he begins by saying, let's begin with who I am. How do I call myself? And what should you call me? You call me Yahweh. You call me the I Am. The best guess in terms of what that holy four letters, um, what that Hebrew name is meant to be, is the word I Am. And part of the reason why we think that is because in the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 3, remember Moses says, okay, you're sending me to the, to the people of Israel. If I come to the people in Exodus 3.13 and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So he is the great I am. And that implies a bunch of things. The name that God chooses for himself or to disclose himself to us, the name that he chooses for us to think of him as his personal name is the great I am, I am. And it implies a few things about him. One, that he's self-existent. Not that I became, he's the I am, right? No one ever created him, he's the only creator. He is independent. Or another way might be put it, he is undependent. He needs nothing from anybody and no one has done something in order for him to exist or to have value. 
He's the I am. He is literally self-existent. It also points to God's eternality. He simply is. He is the I am. So when we think of him, we should think he always is. That's what he means by calling himself the I am, right? Because if we go into the past and we say, well, what was God back then? He will say, I am. Wait, you were I am back then? Yeah, because he is then and he is now. How about in the future? I am. He still is. So eternally, he doesn't change. And so that's why, right, Abraham calls God the everlasting God in Genesis 21. That's why Psalm 90 verse 2 says this. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had even formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the great I am. Third, his name I am implies that he is immutable. He is not the great I am becoming or I will be, right? He is the I am, period. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he says he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that that I am has sent you, he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He will always be the holy I am. So see, before God speaks of his love, right, his goodness, he declares again as a reminder, and doubly for emphasis, right, that he is the great I am, he is great. He is categorically different. And we must understand that before we go there. Why, why does he begin with his holiness, his greatness, his, his categorical difference before he speaks of his goodness? And I like Henry, uh, Matthew Henry's answer. He says he goes from his greatness to his goodness because of this. He says, so that the terror of his greatness may not make us afraid, we are told how good he is. But so that we may not presume on his goodness, we are told how great he is. Right? Like, again, if your mental image of God in your soul is this is God, he is holy, he is great, and this is where you're at, you're going to just lean unbalancedly just towards that and towards the law and the keeping of the law and being hard against sin and sinners, right? But if you're on the other side and you're just all about his goodness and how kind and merciful and gracious he is and that's all you got, then again, you become unbalanced and then you emphasize and you take advantage of this God and like, you know, like your unbelieving coworker or neighbor, they kind of think, well, God is love, right? That's the main thing. He's going to forgive me. That's his job. It is the balance of both. And I think that's why God, as he reveals his name, begins with, remember who I am first. I am the I am. And once we understand that, then we can talk about my other attributes, the attributes specific to his love for us. He begins with merciful and gracious. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Yahweh, the Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. The word merciful, it, it may, your, your modern translation might say compassionate. It's, it's a word that designates maternal sympathy. Maternal sympathy. Um, it's like in Isaiah 49, Verse 14 to 16, when Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And this is what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God just expressing this idea of compassion to the illustration of a, of a nursing mom. I, I have four kids. The, my baby, the baby in my house is 13 years old. He's not a baby. And I, I miss having babies. So at church on Sunday, we have a lot of little toddlers and stuff. I just love them. And I, when their mom's not looking, I give them candy. I give them donuts. I'm just trying to bribe their love because I love these little ones. They're so cute. They're so adorable. And I have a compassion for them. I have a tender uh, place in my heart for them, but nothing close to what their mom's love for them is. And this is God saying, listen, this is what it means for me to be merciful. If I've made a covenant vow to you, I think of you as a nursing mom thinks of her toddler. Even if that mom, even if wicked, sinful moms could forget their babies, I can't forget you. That's the term he uses for merciful. This is our God. 
He is merciful and he is gracious. Grace, the term that is used here is a synonym for compassion. And of course, you know, it means to be kind to those who don't deserve it. But when we talk about God's grace, we mean that it is the active quality in God that causes him to find joy in granting favor, goodness, kindness to those who don't deserve it, those who can't earn it, those who deserve the opposite. That's his grace. It's our God's nature, apparently, and this is what God is revealing to us. So this isn't me just kind of going, let me just describe to you from what I've read what God is like. This is God telling Moses, Moses, write this down. This is how I would disclose myself to you and to all peoples for all generations. I am Yahweh, the I am, the I am. And I am compassionate like a nursing mom. And I am gracious and forgiving like nothing you have ever seen. It's my nature It's who I am. You know, grace exemplifies God in this context because he is talking about being merciful and gracious to people like these Israelites who had just finished this abomination. We're not even a week away from the memory of what has taken place in the Israeli camp, right? And here we are, God revealing himself as not just the I am in holy greatness, but saying I am merciful and gracious. Let me just add this. In the New Testament, when it speaks of Christ coming, right? His appearing, his willingness to live a perfect life, to die for the penalty of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to pay the full price of the sins, the penalty we should pay, on the cross, and then to be raised to newness of life. When it talks about the appearance of that salvation, places like Titus 2.11, it calls it grace. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. What is it talking about? Paul is talking about Christ and his physical appearance and his ministry and his work and his accomplishment for us. He says, when the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It's almost like Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace, and he is. And that's what we're supposed to receive from God's revelation of himself in terms of what does it mean that God loves us? He loves us like a compassionately tender mother, mercifully and graciously. He'll embody that grace in his son and he'll pour his wrath on that son, the wrath that I deserve to pay so that I could be forgiven and stand righteous before the greatness of this holy God. He goes on to say, Point C, he is slow to anger. It just means that he's patient, but I like, I like the Hebrew phrase of it. The word uh, for uh, slow to anger literally can be translated long of nostrils. I like that, or long of nose. And at first you think, man, that's a weird, but it makes sense, right? Because when it talks about Nebuchadnezzar getting angry at Daniel's friends because they would not bow, it says that he was furious, as our English text might say, but it literally says that his face twisted. And he's trying to describe, like, what does anger look like on your face? It looks like, like, you know, so when I get angry at my kids, that anger doesn't look like, son, you have, um, you have angered me deeply. I'm, I'm troubled by your actions. It doesn't look like that. I'm not a robot, right? It comes with some fire. And one of the places you could see it is in the flaring of my nostrils. I'm like, and I don't know why that happens, but right? But when we're mad, one of the first things is our, our nostrils all flare up. Right? Our, our eyebrows raise up and it is clear on our face that we are emotionally ready to go. That's that word. God is slow about his nostril flares. Right? He doesn't really have nostrils. It's just an anthropomorphism. Right? But it's saying that he is patient in a way that seems like he shouldn't be. We talked about Jonah this morning. I love Jonah. Right? And at the end of Jonah, when Jonah's four, Jonah 4, 2, he prays to the Lord. And, um, and remember his, you remember his, his, his gospel message, right? His very detailed call to repentance. Yeah, you have 40 days and then it will be overthrown. That's it. That's all he records. I, I mean, maybe he said more, I don't know. But all we know is that he's just walking around saying, you got 40 days, time is ticking. You know, <laughs> 40 days. I'll see you guys later. Waiting to see what happens, right? And he's waiting outside to see what happens. And the place repents. And how does Noah, uh, how does Jonah react? He is mad. 
And this is in his anger. This is God, this him praying to the Lord in Jonah 4.2. He says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? He said, didn't I say this? His nostrils is playing right now, right? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are, and this is the prophet speaking truth, even in his anger. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah, he's not really confessing this, right? He's still mad. But it's interesting what he's mad at. He's mad at the full knowledge of who God is. He's a God that is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. And that's what scripture says too. When it talks about it in 2 Peter, it says, um, 2 Peter 3, 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is long of nose. He is patient and slow in anger. And part of that is so that every one of his redeemed would come to repentance and come into the fold, right? That's the nature of our God. He is that good in his love for us. Next, D, D, point D, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me say, first of all, the word abounding is in there, not because he's not abounding in all of his attributes. Every attribute is infinite, eternal, and always on in God. Can I say something about that always on? Like, you know, like uh, you know, all the superhero movies are real popular these days, right? And, uh, and I grew up in an age where I, I read a lot of comic books, so I like superheroes. You know, every superhero has either a power that turns on and off, or it's just always on. It's what he is, right? And so, for example, Iron Man, yeah, without the suit, he's just a really smart, rich dude, right? But with the suit, he can do all kinds of crazy stuff. That's his power put on, right? But when he steps out, his power is off. Superman, he's just super, right? De- Superman disguises himself as Clark Kent. But if you snuck, be- you know, snuck up behind Clark Kent and tried to snap him, what will happen? Your knife will break. Because he is still Superman. It is always on. When we think about the attributes of God, that's what we mean. They are always on. He is not slow of anger for now, right? He's not gracious and merciful for now. He is not holy except when I need him not to be, right? He is all of those things fully. That's the problem. He is fully righteous and just, and so how can he love us, the sinner, when he knows we're guilty? This this is a mesh up. Something's not going to work here. We need help. He is abounding, abundant, doesn't run out of any of his attributes, but he wants to place extra emphasis on this. I am abounding, particularly in my steadfast love and faithfulness. The word for steadfast love there is hesed. It's our great Hebrew word that it has an abundance of meaning and is used throughout the the Old Testament uh, to talk about this aspect of God's love, His his loyalty, His covenant faithfulness to His people. It's an excellent word. And uh, some of your translations will say His loving kindness, right? Um, I'm not sure what other translations there are now that I think of it. Does anyone have something else? What is it? It just says mercy? Okay. I would rather they use loving kindness or or, um, or steadfast love because I, I want to know where it's saying the word hesed because it's so, so powerful and so packed filled. And the reason why you have those different translations is because it's trying to capture two things about this word. One, it speaks of love, but not just kind of the emotion of love, but the commitment of love. It talks about love that is defined within the parameters of deep relationship. That's become sometimes people would translate it covenant faithfulness. They're trying to capture this element of God's love for his people because of that relationship, that commitment. The second element is exactly that, is this idea of tenacity or loyalty. So there's this love that's a love of, of commitment, a love of relationship, a love that is expressed that you are mine and I am yours, that kind of love. But it also comes with loyalty. And so I like this translation, steadfast love. Because it's trying to say that it is a committed love, it is a covenant faithfulness love, it is a relational love, and it's a love that holds fast no matter what, 
even though you don't always deserve it. It's a beautiful word, right? God is abounding in this. We saw the sin of Israel. Do they deserve his hesed? Of course not, but that's why the word exists. Because this is what God abounds in. They had just made a golden image. It's the equivalent of them committing adultery right under his nose. And yet here's God talking about his steadfast love. This word hesed is used often and frequently throughout uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures. And let me give you a few of the Psalms um, that I love. Psalm 36.5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. That's a praise song, right? I think most of these will be praise songs somewhere. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I love that. His steadfast love is better than life. It's better to die knowing that his steadfast love is with you than to live not certain that his steadfast love abides with you. Right? It's better than life. I choose this over living the next day. Right? I choose God's steadfast love. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And Psalm 103, and if you guys want brothers, look at Psalm 103 on your own. It's almost an exposition on this revelation of God's name in Exodus 34. But there it says in Psalm 103, verse 15 to 18, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, right? It's his everlasting, faithful, covenant, faithful love. That's what it's talking about. So it, it adds the word faithfulness to kind of double down on the loyalty element of it. This is God's truthfulness. It's not so much the emphasis on the fact that he will always come through, but that he doesn't lie about this, that he is always truthful about this. His steadfast love endures because he has said it will endure and it will never run out. When he says it is abundant, he means it will always remain abundant. And the way back every time we sin is available for us. In the New Testament, the most clear statement of that is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let me just remind you, there it says that He is faithful. And if He didn't add this, it would still be a good verse to me. But He also says, and He is just, He is righteous, as a reminder to say that He is faithful, but not just faithful emotionally to say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you sinned, you do that, you guys are sinners, you have issues. He doesn't wink wink our sin away. It says He is faithful and He is just. Meaning that sin you confessed, He nailed it to the cross and His Son paid for it in full. Every single careless word careless thought and sinful deed. He must pay for in full. That's how his steadfast love and faithfulness works out in our lives. Finally, love and justice in verse 7. We've talked about his attributes, the revelation of his love for us, right? And how that, again, starts to deepen our affection, our attitude towards a healthy fear of our God, how great he really is. And his Holiness doesn't keep us from him because he's the one that's resolved this issue. He has sent his son to die in our place so that by his sacrifice, his substitution of the, of the penalty we deserve to pay, his righteousness is fully paid, his love is fully displayed, and that's why justice and love meet there at the cross. That's what we have. And so his attributes have been, has been expressed in his name, and then he talks about his actions. He, he is a God, verse 7, who's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to third and fourth generation. The first part says that he keeps this steadfast love for thousands, and he doesn't mean thousands of people. In this context, I'm, I'm almost positive he means for thousands of generations. If you think about this, the reason why we are saved by grace through faith is first begun in the covenant to Abraham. 
right? Abraham believed, according to the book of Romans, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. We still bear the benefits of God's steadfast love from Abraham's covenant promise. That's thousands of years ago, hundreds of generations ago. So when God says here, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving inequity, transgressions, that's us too. It's not just the nation of Israel and how wicked they could be, that's us too. And when it says these terms, inequity, transgression, sin, it is three synonyms for sin. Each of them kind of have their own space, right? The first, inequity means wickedness. It's just something is just wrong, it's wicked. Transgression means rebellion, that you've done something intentionally, high-handedly to transgress, to do something you know you're not supposed to do. And sin is just a general term. And by using those three, God is throwing into the bucket pool every conceivable form of sin that human beings might do. There is no sin not covered by these three in combination. He is saying there is no sin that my steadfast love cannot cover. That's how good his love is for us. But just so that we remember his greatness, that he is the I am, the unchangeable in terms of his holiness, he reminds us of again, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He will by no means clear the guilty. His justice must be fully realized because he is a just God. And you guys think about it, even with a human judge, we know that, that love should never, right, be the main thing when a judge is supposed to be just, right? Because, you know, again, sinners want God to be just loving, not, not a God of justice. But if we said, okay, hey, you got that court appearance, right? Good thing you have that judge, right? Because the guy that hit your car and that isn't paying you, that judge is loving. So you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, not guilty, you're, you're free. What about my car? Well, what about your car? I love you too, you know? Is that what we want? We want a loving judge? Of course not, because actual sin and damage is happening. We want a just and righteous judge who is consistent in his justice. But we have a God that is that consistent in his righteousness, but is this consistent in his love. And like we said, those two meet at the cross. And then that's why these two things exist. And that's why God is saying this to Moses. This is how I want you to think of me. This is how the fear of me will grow through my love. I am a God that keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving everything. But I will not by any means clear the guilty. How do those two things exist? Well, someone must pay for your sins in full. And that someone is Jesus Christ. This last part, don't let it trip you up. Because in our English, it almost sounds like visiting the inequity of the fathers and the children, like God punishes kids for their father's crime. That's not what it's saying. In fact, Scripture strictly condemns that, that kind of line of thinking and says that no father will be put to death for his son's sins and no sins will be put together for his father's sins. What he is saying is that he will visit upon them, that he would examine them. And to the third and fourth generation, those individuals who will remain in their guilt will remain and pass down similar sin and guilt generationally. God will visit in on them and find them guilty. The point is, He doesn't let anyone off the hook. If we stand righteous before God, it's not because of what we are or what we've done. It's because the perfect Lamb of God has done it for us. So if you take all this together, we, we began with God's greatness and how He is unsafe. You can't just, you can't just walk up to this holy and magnificent God. But then how can we have a relationship with Him? And it's all God. And that's why Moses in verse 8, he falls down and he worships. It's God's love that demands our worship and reverence. And when we appreciate the depths of His grace and love for us, we begin to fear God more, not less. We get to enjoy God more, not less. We become more and more careful about how we live us because this is the amazing God that he is and he has sent his son because he loves us this much it, it draws us to a covenant loyalty that is beyond our sinful nature but is because of who God is and how much he loves us that's the gospel right and that's the fear of God to his love let's pray Lord thank you for this time for the sacrifice that these men have making to spend together 
to look at God's word and to think about how to fear you well and how that might impact their life, their ministry, their family, their relationships. And may it be the beginning of a transformation in their soul to think well of God and to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, you're dismissed, my brothers. Great job. Great job.